<laughs> it's been a hell of a 2022. Uh, COVID. Volcanic eruptions. The Kingdom of Tonga got wiped off the map. Oh. I don't know if you, you oh. care about that. Oh. I will save it for a future episode, but... Uh, what we're facing down now as, as a civilization is a war in Europe. Um, almost a week and a half now that, that there's been a war being fought between Russia and Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is resisting Russia. Nivon, why didn't Russia invade Ukraine? Russia had so many fears about this potential NATO expansion uh, you know, having Ukraine be- become a part of NATO. But there was also additional uh, reasons, uh, the autonomous regions in Ukraine uh, and the claims of genocide against those people and the mistreatment, etc. Uh, I'm sure Putin had many reasons. We don't know those reasons. We don't know what Putin thinks, and we're not going to tell you. Uh, but this is something that is greatly impacting everybody not just in in western europe but also throughout the world um there was fighting later last in in last week uh around a nuclear power station everybody kind of held their breath around that one because of heavier how how do you know that wasn't fake news that could have been fake news and that's actually a great point is that uh all you know in, in parallel to this very real kinetic military conflict we're also seeing a huge information war unfold and it's hard to keep track of what narratives are accurately representing what's on the ground. Something as, um, I'd say, important as understanding casualty statistics becomes almost impossible in this kind of conflict because each side is either over-reporting or under-reporting and really kind of leaves everybody with spinning heads and no certainty as to what's going on. But it's a messed up conflict, and what we're going to try to talk about today is, is suss out maybe some of the reasoning that... Um, has been given for, for to justify such a horrible invasion and a uh, huge crux of Western and Russian relations uh, from a security standpoint have been co- colored by this claim that Russia makes that uh, it, it, they, they see uh, NATO expansion as a threat um, and that the continued expansion of NATO and the potential entry of NATO into Ukraine uh, is an is a red line that cannot be crossed, and it seems that uh, this has spurned uh, military action finally. Um, but some, the, the, the notion of NATO expansion is something that NATO itself sees as a totally non-threatening thing. That's something that all countries are able to, to participate in if they want. NATO claims they have an open-door policy, and it's not really up to NATO to decide if a country should or should not enter. Um, Russia keeps on referencing a verbal agreement that was made in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union was collapsing that um, was made between the negotiating parties uh, in, in the U.S. and the USSR that uh, if Germany was allowed to peacefully reunify and enter into NATO, that NATO would not be expanded. Now, NATO claims that this never happened, this, this discussion never took place, and really from a legal standpoint, there's no credibility because nothing was signed and put down on paper. But this is clearly a belief that the Russian government has. This is uh, an assurance they felt they were given, and, and they largely see the 
continued growth of the military lines as something that is becoming more and more threatening, especially as they point to things like the NATO air campaign over Yugoslavia in 1999, uh, NATO's enforcement of a no-fly zone in Libya. Uh, To the the Russian security conscious, this is uh, more evidence that NATO is, in fact, an aggressive military alliance that is rapidly approaching its borders, that is used as a point of deploying nuclear weapons to places like Belgium and Turkey and to deploy missile systems as well. So to a certain extent, um, this has been a a problem for decades now, and it kind of came to a boiling point last uh, January, I think when Russia started building up its military forces on the borders of Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, There is some diplomatic pressure where Russia was looking for assurances that Ukraine would be quote-unquote Finlandized, where they would not, they basically would not include uh, Ukraine to make commitments to that. And now that Russia has invaded, Levan, what do you think? Should, should, how does NATO feel now? How, how, How would a country like Poland uh, feel now that they see Russian tanks rolling over the border and, and shelling Ukrainian cities. Well, they're they're validated, right? The the fears have been validated, um, and now every country would want to be a part of NATO. Uh, every country in in uh, Europe, basically. Um, but this does speak to kind of more fundamental aspects of human nature and societies uh, and game theory and what it means to basically behave in a way that is zero-sum or non-zero-sum and in some ways both Russia and the West have behaved in a non-zero-sum manner where we know Putin uh, in the past has attempted to join NATO and you think about what that would mean for the stability of Europe as a whole right like it would be in their self-interest, you would think. Now, maybe there's some nuances that I'm missing. There's certain reasons why that wouldn't be ideal. But as a general principle, you know, you know, there's strength in numbers, right? Like if you think about human evolution, the reason why humans basically won out over all of their primates, all of their animals, is because of our ability to cooperate. Because you find out, oh... If I share, it's actually better for me because when I need help, then you'll give me help because not only did you survive because I helped you, but you also have the capacity to hunt and, you know, to to, to get food. And when I'm running low, you help me out. Anyway, you you get the idea like it's it's oh, it's non-zero sum here. Um, So in the same way, I think this sort of cooperation, this sort of. Um, this knowledge that working together is actually in my self-interest, this would lead to a much better state of affairs. And I think any country that recognizes that uh, would jump at the chance to join a a sort of alliance that would provide collective security, security, economic stability, etc. So when we look at how the West has behaved by rejecting, you know, uh, Russia's attempt to join NATO and and then Putin himself maybe not doing as much as he could have to appease any concerns they had. 
to join NATO. Like, on both sides, they viewed it as a zero-sum game. If we give in to Russia, we'd lose something. Whereas the truth is, maybe they would have, everyone would have gained something. In the same way, Putin now views it like if they, you know, if, if Ukraine joins NATO, then we lose. And so we have to strike back to, you know, counter our loss kind of thing. So you see where looking at anything from a, uh, from a zero-sum perspective will inevitably lead to conflict. Um, so yeah, I, I think there seems like a lot of missed opportunities here. Um, what do you think, Andre? Well, I mean, from the sp standpoint of a smaller country like a Poland or an Estonia, uh, given the history of the past hundred years, of course, you would want some guarantees that you would not fall victim to further domination by a power like Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, the Poles had an absolute shit time during World War II where there were partition between Russia and the Soviet Union. So when they kind of had their independence secured in 1991, joining a military alliance seems like the natural state of affairs, especially given the tumultuous history of the region. Now, kind of going back to the point that you made, um, I think on three or four occasions, Russia applied for membership to NATO, and there's some documentation about it you know when vladimir putin first became president of russia um in 2000 he very much wanted to include russia into the military alliance and i guess you could still have security provisions for countries like poland or estonia while also sort of expanding the military alliance to a place like russia as well to kind of ensure that to your point there is kind of a collective security across the continent you're not alienating anybody from it but I think that's really the, the, the point that maybe the Russian side of things is getting at, is that this alliance will continue to expand without the consideration of including Russia at any point. And after a while, you know, I'd, I'd put the knife in the ground around the bombings of Yugoslavia in 1999, that they very much saw this as an anti-Russian alliance, right? I mean, if NATO was originally created as a counterbalance to the expanding influence of communism in Europe, especially after World War II... You know, you had to protect your territory against the Warsaw Pact. The Soviet Union was intervening in Czechoslovakia and Hungary uh, to kind of enforce their own will onto some of these states. You kind of needed a security organization to counter that. And there was obviously a lot of fears that the Russian tanks would roll over and reunify Germany, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, where was the reasoning for that when the Soviet Union actually fell apart, right? Where you lost the massive military force on the east that would be threatening to your interests in Western Europe. And the Russian point is that the, you know, NATO should have ceased to exist and there should have been a collective European security organization that was organized um, to kind of reflect the realities on the ground. And I think what we're seeing now is, you know, to, to your point, Yvonne, we're, we're kind of seeing two tribes that were forced into existence, one that was coexisting with one another and one that was effectively alienated and that is now behaving in a total batshit crazy insane manner and, and you know we talked about it before where a lot of these conversations of oh did nato did nato not contribute to the current war in ukraine well it's probably not the most productive thing to talk about right now but at some point we're going to have to critically evaluate how our policy in the past 30 years has shaped the security culture and realities of europe and what it has created is two tribes two camps of countries 
that are going to be inevitably at odds with one another. Um, and that's what we're seeing unfold. So it remains to be seen. Um, you know, what, what sorts of alternatives do we have? Could we create a collective security framework that would also involve Russia, that would also sort of bring stability and, you know, economic growth throughout the entire continent? Maybe that's the only way out, but it seems that with the current steps that have been taken, um, some of these wounds are going to be too deep and that the fabric of European security is kind of forever altered. Well, you know, it's not just the fabric of European security. It's the, the fabric of the entire um, political climate in the world, right? The world climate here, um, because, st I mean, you think about how powerful the West is and what it would have meant to have Russia be a part of them as opposed to now be essentially a rogue state. Um, and what that does to the dynamics of, you know, the West versus China and the alliances that China has um, and this battle between maybe the West and the rest of the world, really. Um, what could have been, you know, maybe a, a one world government, maybe we were going down that path because, you know, you think about the reduction in, 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 in major conflicts since World War II. Right. We were heading down a certain path. And this might be a turning point where instead of heading down the path of a one world government and maybe, you know, not everyone was going to obviously think that's a utopia. There's obviously downsides <laughs> to, to, to everything. But we were potentially going down this one world government utopia road and now we might be going down a road that is closer to a world war three or a, a world that is more disjointed a world where major conflicts are more likely right where global trade is reduced significantly um i mean it's it's a major shift, really, um, and it's really there, there's going to be untold second, third, fourth order consequences to to what's going on now. Um, it is interesting to think about, you know, having a a one world government. Like, what would have happened if Russia joined NATO? Like, what does that do to a uh, a nation like China? Mm -hmm. Or India. And then what would happen if, you know, you start to have more countries join, not necessarily NATO, not necessarily political, uh, a military alliance, but a general kind of political um, or economic alliance or, or something like that. Uh, although all those things are kind of tied together. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what will that mean? I mean, can you envision that? Can, can you envision a scenario where it's like, you know, most of, I don't know. I know China has a lot of activity in Africa, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, could you envision a world where, you know, had Russia joined, you know, some other countries in the Middle East joined, maybe some Asian countries, maybe India joined, uh, you know, not necessarily NATO at this point, maybe it's called something else, but let's just call it NATO for the sake of this argument. You know, would it be NATO versus, you know, China and Africa and Taiwan? <laughs> well, you're getting at an interesting you point know. is that, you know, if NATO... I mean, NATO is a military alliance. That's kind of the, the, the basic purpose of its structure. But, you know, do you, like every military alliance needs a reason to exist. So even if you did have 
Russia included into NATO, let's say after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you still would have had to have a reason for the military alliance to function, right? And then you're going to have to... I, I actually think that had Russia joined NATO, we probably would have seen accelerated conflict with China because what other threat could NATO sort of use as a reference point to justify its existence? I mean, really, what is the purpose of military alliances, right? It's to secure yourself, right? But to secure yourself, you have to secure yourself against something. And I guess the ultimate argument is, do you need a military? I mean, now, obviously, like, as we said, with this invasion of Ukraine, like, all arguments are out the window. You know, clearly, this is a highly militarized, highly volatile region that, that is going to have to have ensured uh, security for, for, for the various states that don't want to be locked into a state of war. But in the past, what was the purpose of the military alliance anyways, right? Why could we not have demilitarized Europe, so to speak? You know, let, you know, move the military bases out and kind of focused on other things. And I think as long as you have military alliances, even if you have India, Pakistan, everybody joining, eventually you're going to fall into a point where you're going to have to engage in conflict or else you don't need the alliance to exist. So I guess my question to you, um, you know, you, you mentioned World War III. I mean, how do you see things going? Do you feel like we're going to be escalating? Do you feel like this is going to be contained to Ukraine? Is there going to be a chance that the United States is going to be involved? What's your take on things? Uh, man, I mean, it's when you're dealing with someone like Putin who seems to be off the rails because what he's already done, right? Like this whole invasion of Ukraine and now these sanctions that are placed upon Russia. I mean, them becoming a social pariah, like Russia becoming a social pariah, or a, I mean, I don't know, a political pariah, whatever you want to call it. Um, that already, for decades to come, has obviously, um, it will obviously impact Russia. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's a, such a sad state of affairs when you think about it. Like one man's decision, you know, has such a such an impact um i i think it, he because he's unpredictable because him doing this you know it's, it seems to me like it was really obvious there was like no there's no real exit plan here mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. produces a positive result for russia right so the fact that he got into this is already already suggests that he is willing to make bad decisions mm -hmm. or unable to see the gravity of the downsides to these decisions. That makes it more likely that, you know, he would be, he would be open to using nuclear weapons. If things got bad enough for Russia, if he felt embarrassed enough, if things weren't progressing as he intended, if there was additional sanctions, the, uh, you know, the, the Russian economy just continued to, to spiral out of control um, to, to see more protests in Russia, anti-war protests. Mm -hmm. This, I mean, this could drive somebody just I mean, looking at this from a psychological standpoint, this could certainly drive someone um, as close as uh, you would fear to using nuclear weapons. I don't want to say he would still use it in that circumstance, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a bit too close to comfort when you start to factor in, okay, the political situation of Russia, 
the psychological state of someone like Putin, you know, given mm-hmm. given his background, given his history, given his aspirations for Russia, and then given the current situation. Right. And then knowing like how badly he's miscalculated things, right? I hope, obviously, uh, that doesn't transpire, the use of nuclear weapons. Um, I think unless nukes are used, I don't think there's going to be a World War III. So, um, you, so the, only, the only scenario in which a global war breaks out is if nuclear weapons are deployed. Right. So, because I, I don't think Russia militarily has the... I don't think there's the political capital or the military capital to do any more than what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely something that one of the unexpected observations that, that everybody's taking on uh, as this war goes on is that there is clearly something going on with the Russian military. And we saw them intervene in Georgia and it was kind of a train wreck, but that was before a lot of the military reforms were put in place starting 2011. And, you know, we saw Russia deploy to Syria in a limited capacity and it seemed like they had more of a modernized fighting force at that point. But what's happening in Ukraine is just absolutely like, you know, complete like operational breakdowns, uh, no coordination between military units. I mean, it really does seem like maybe there's been a level of overestimating their capabilities to a certain extent, which maybe that's like this, like 5d chess they're playing, right. Where they're making everybody think that they're not, you know, having their shit together and whatnot. Um, I agree that they definitely, you know, I I don't see them trying to wage a greater war on European soil while they can't even figure out what's going on in Ukraine. And I think eventually, given just the sheer amount of numbers the Russian military has, they probably will uh, occupy the country to some extent. I mean, that's not even taken into account the very fierce resistance they're going to have from like an insurgent standpoint. But yeah, I mean, they're so bogged down there. I don't imagine they're going to go and try to invade Poland afterwards. But that kind of also begs the question of like, is there anything that could trigger a NATO response, right? I mean, really, at this point, they're not attacking any NATO member states. So there's no real contractual obligation, so to speak, that NATO has to intervene into Ukraine. But at one point, and what's what's it going to take to sort of drive military intervention from the West. Maybe high civilian casualties, right? There's now, we're kind of entering into a transition period where the first week of the war, it appeared like the Russian military was trying maybe to avoid massive civilian casualties. They were uh, avoiding going into cities. They're trying to capture airports with airborne assaults. That failed. Um, So now they're kind of going back to what's being referred to as like the the Grozny tactics, like the shit they're using in the Chechen wars where they just sort of just level residential areas with heavy artillery indiscriminately. And if you start having mass amounts of civilian casualties, I mean, is that going to be enough to, to warrant like a military response from the West? And would Russia respond with nuclear weapons in that case? Right? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a cost benefit analysis. And unfortunately, you know, any, any intervention from the West, you can see how the cost can easily outweigh the benefit. And when you have measures like the sanctions that they're imposing on Russia, you know, those continued sanctions, even more stern sanctions, 
you know, at some point, the Russian people will turn against Putin. Right. Like, it's not a sustainable position to be in, right? So, I would, I would imagine from, you know, NATO standpoint or the West standpoint, they would eat, you know, civilian casualties in Ukraine and kind of cross their fingers, not cross their fingers, but rely on, on the sanctions to over time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, swing, swing things. That's my guess because, yeah, I mean, uh, otherwise, like, why wouldn't you intervene now? I mean, it's already at, at you know, if, if, if that's your metric, I mean, I don't know. I think that they're already invading the entirety of Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah. There's already civilian, civilian casualties. Right. Um, right. Yeah. If we haven't seen an intervention now, I don't know. Without, like, escalation times three, I don't suspect there's going to be any involvement in NATO. But there, there's some really interesting commentary coming of that because NATO membership has clearly been dangled to Ukraine, right? You know, or else Russia wouldn't be so pissed off. You know, clearly there was some indication that, okay, maybe there's a pathway for Ukraine to join. But in many ways, it kind of just makes the situation so much worse because if NATO was posturing to eventually admit Ukraine, um, but then when actual conflict comes, they're not willing to stand up to, to, to Russia or, or to actually face Russia down and call their bluff and kind of leaves Ukraine to, the, to, to their own devices, which, I mean, has to be noted, Ukraine's absolutely like, nobody expected this kind of resistance, right? I mean, that they're demonstrating a level of military finesse that, I mean, I mean is, is remarkable and, and commendable. Um, but if, you, if NATO was never going to admit Ukraine, and if NATO was never willing to go to war over Ukraine, then why weren't they more willing to engage Russia diplomatically and maybe secure a formalized neutral status and kind of move forward with things? So if there's never any intention to, to have... NATO forces dying on behalf of Ukraine, then what was the point of all of this, right? Um, and, and that's where I think Ukraine's been put in a very unfair position because honestly, at this point, like either admit them into NATO and, you know, back them up and, and, and kind of fight back and put the might of the European military behind it or start negotiating because, I mean, this is just going to result in more civilian deaths, more you know, damage to Ukrainian infrastructure, more destabilization, destabilization of Ukraine. Like Ukraine shouldn't have to fight Russia on behalf of Western Europe. It's, a, it's an unjust and an unfair position to put a country into. So it, it, it's kind of a, a cruel arrangement. Uh, you know, I, I don't envy Zelensky's position at all. He, he's, I think he's, he's definitely tr- proving to be a remarkable leader and I've always been a big fan of his, but he's simultaneously dealing with an aggressive invader, but also with a military bloc that it's kind of pussyfooting, I guess, is the best way to, to, to sort of... Exactly. And, you know, I've always been more skeptical of NATO expansion, but honestly, at this point, it's like, what are you waiting for? Like, what is the purpose of your organization? And if you were never going to include Ukraine, then why were you ever making those suggestions to begin with? No, those are fair points. Uh, it right. seems like someone fucked up. <laughs> someone, someone somewhere <laughs> dropped the ball. And I will say that that very... First and foremost, the fuck up is on Russia's side. Like the idiotic nature of this invasion, the complete uh, strategic miscalculation, 
the, I mean, the, there was never any the, benefit. The to lack me. of an end game. Lack of an like, what is your what is your plan here, man? Are you gonna are you gonna topple you know Zelensky? You're gonna install a puppet regime? Like, are you prepared to like keep on dying to maintain that puppet regime in place? Like, this is clearly a blunder. Um, <laughs> it's, it's probably the stupidest fucking war that, that's been fought in the past <laughs> twenty years. But dumber than Iraq. <laughs> you know, Iraq was dumb in like a uniquely American way. Uh, Iraq was it was a, it was a it was a crime. But there's something especially tragic about this because of, you know, the, the ties that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use the phrase of, you know, Ukraine and, Ru- and Russians are brothers because clearly those ties have been severed by this war. And I'm never right. going to lay any claim to that. But, you know, undoubtedly, Ukrainians and Russians have, you know, they have historical connections. There are families that, you know, are part Ukrainian, part Russian. Some people have Ukrainian spouses. Um, people, you know, travel between the two countries all the time. But the tragic aspect of the war, this war is all of that is now decimated. You have bathed all of that in blood and you can't do anything about that. And, you know, it, it's a civilizational thing at this point. And Iraq was fucked up and messed up. And, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, Bush, Cheney, Powell, Powell's dead now. But Rumsfeld is dead too, Jesus. All right, well, we're running out of people to, to, to try, put on trial. Um, but this is different. And this, this is more, I think, a betrayal of historic ties and a betrayal of um, cultural bonds that, that is absolutely unforgivable from Russia. Yeah, standpoint. yeah, it is. It's a... Uh... It's a complete tragedy, really. Um, and on a final note, it is nice to see so much pushback from social media. You know, we've, you know, everyone's been criticizing social media as of late because of the polarization, because of just all the issues, um, just the wrong incentives that that these uh, social media companies have. But, you know, if it can create an outcry an outrage against war and we yeah. can stop this hideous phenomenon in, right. in, in human cultures from occurring, then that's a huge, huge positive of social media. Yeah. Um, so that there is a bright side maybe to this, maybe, you know, I mean, China seeing the, the reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, what's going to be their stance now on Taiwan, mm-hmm. you know, how does that, just seeing the global reaction to this, I think, uh, and a lot of it due to the internet, due to social media, I mean, that also has um, some interesting implications moving forward. Moving forward. That's right. Yeah. Well, more to discuss uh, next time. We'll keep watching it. Yeah. Take care. Goodbye. Adios. The Sudanian.